Jonathan Wakefield is a brewmaster and founder of Miami's renowned Jay Wakefield Brewing. Now he's opening up his internationally acclaimed tap room at Sirius XM Business Radio for an intimate look at the intersection of craft beer and popular culture. So pull up a chair, have a round on us, then join the conversation on the business of brewing. This is the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield on Sirius XM Business Radio. Hi, I'm Jonathan Wakefield, and this is the Beer Hour on Sirius XM Business Radio 132. Each week, we introduce you to the movers and shakers of the craft beer industry, as well as beer lovers from other interesting fields of endeavor. You won't find most of them anywhere else on the radio. I'm here in the taproom with my co-host, our head brewer, Maria Cabri. Hello, Maria. Hi, John. I'm glad we're back to English. <laughs> our first guest turned his love for home brewing and his passion for the outdoors into a thriving brewery, restaurant, cafe in Rochester, Minnesota. Forager Brewery takes its inspiration from the Driftless area a wilderness region in the upper Midwest. As the name of his brewery implies, our next guest built his business around the idea of foraging for wild ingredients from the Driftless area and using mixed culture fermentation to create unique beers that have received national acclaim. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Austin Jevney. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. How are you, John? Doing well. Thank you very much for joining the show today. And uh, I know we're kind of catching you at a time before you're uh, jumping on a plane to go to Copenhagen. So thank you very much. Well, I appreciate you having me on, man. So we're going to jump right into this. When you moved to the Twin Cities, you worked at a co-op and got into home brewing. Tell us about that first setup. Like, what did you brew first? How did it turn out? Tell us a little bit about that, uh, that starting point. Yeah, so first beer I ever brewed on my own, uh, being from Wisconsin, was obviously a spotted cow clone. I think everybody from Wisconsin brews a spotted cow clone for their first homebrew. Um, and it definitely didn't taste like spotted cow, but it wasn't a terrible beer. So um, that just kind of totally got me into it. It was a partial mash beer. So we used a little bit of extract, a little bit of grain. Um, and yeah, from that point on, it was a massive addiction. I was brewing beer multiple times a week in uh, my kitchen and moved to the back porch. Nice. Nice. So, I mean, I guess... It's kind of like the same kind of backstory that I have. I mean, I, you, I guess you got good enough that your friends started to tell you that you should start selling your beer to the public. When did that idea of opening a craft beer like brewery take shape? Yeah, so we were hosting a bunch of parties. I played uh, drums in a couple different bands, and we'd have big parties at our house, and I'd be giving away the home brew um, at those events. And basically, all some people started asking me if they could buy it. And I was like, well, giving away free beer is one thing. Like people drink free beer, but they, uh, if they want to buy it, that means something uh, different. I think that it's actually a reasonably high quality product. Um, at that time, uh, Surly had kind of just gotten started and the Surly law in Minnesota hadn't happened yet. So there weren't tap rooms allowed in distribution breweries. Okay. So there are only 11 breweries in the entire state. Um, now there's like a, almost 200 um, oh, after wow. that law passed. So this was like pre-surly 2007. I wanted to start a brewery, but I had never had any professional experience. And honestly, you couldn't get a job. There there weren't, you couldn't work for free for people because they just didn't need work. Um, so it was very different. So I moved um, my kind of focus across the river into Wisconsin to Rush River Brewing Company. Okay. Started working with them. And then that kind of showed me the things I didn't want to do in beer and kind of solidified what I did want to do. Um, and then it was all about finding capital and uh, a partner to go into business with two failed uh, situations later, uh, end up in Rochester and uh, meet my current partner, Annie. So, yeah, I mean, I guess another kind of similarity that you took the job at Rush River, like when I took the job at Cigar City, how valuable was that time at Rush River to put you to where you are now along the stepping line? I think working for a brewery, if you have ambitions of opening your own thing, is absolutely a must. Um, there was a lot of information I could learn from reading every single book you could get your hands on and learning on a homebrewing scale. But to be able to understand and ask questions about what distribution was like, um, the shortcomings of packaging your product, like where you see loss in the brewery, 
what the limitations of certain size breweries are as far as what kind of beers people were comfortable making at that time um, was super, super important. And just kind of getting a little bit more of a grasp on the legal aspect of what it would take to, to open a brewery and operate a brewery um, was very different than, you know, there's not a lot of good information out there no. um, from each state government about how to do that. So um, to have some real world experience with people who've been through that was, you know, priceless, honestly. That's kind of like why I quit my job. You know, I quit my job in accounting CPA because this was a passion and I left it to really learn about the business from the ground up, not just how to brew, not just to learn how to clean tanks or kegs, how to package, but really about the business itself, you know, about distribution, about the licenses, about the taxes, you know, everything that comprises the business as a whole. Like, I mean, you can't just open a business, just go, Hey, I, I, I know how to brew beer. I mean, cause there's so much more to it than that. And I think as you have, have described that there is, it's very valuable to actually get that commercial experience if you have the idea and notion that you want to open your own brewery. Absolutely, man. And I made the mistake of also opening a restaurant at the same time. (laughs) That's just a completely different mess to to handle. Um, But, you know, we wouldn't have it any other way at this point. We we love our restaurant and we were proud of it, but, but it was a whole different deck of cards to deal. Right. But like, like many successful entrepreneurs, you, you did have a couple false starts prior to su- the success of Forager. What did you learn from those experiences? So the first experience was all about like uh, getting capital from people and trying to convince investors who I didn't work for a brewery for very long. Uh, it was hard to like showcase what I was planning on doing to potential investors so like figuring out how to drum up capital was one of like the main hurdles when I was younger. Um, and then I did find a, a friend of mine who owns a restaurant um, about 30 minutes from where we're at now, a super successful Mediterranean style place. And they wanted to open a little brew pub. So I kind of like started working with them for a couple of years. Um, this was at Nash restaurant and bar there in Winona right now. It's a amazing place. Um, if you're ever driving along the Mississippi river, absolutely want to check them out, but our paths just weren't quite lining up and how we wanted the timing to go. Okay. So it was also that thing where you learn about when you're going to work with another partner to make sure that like both of you have one piece that you're offering to this puzzle that kind of differentiates and it only overlaps little bits and that, you know, sometimes working with like, a great friend of yours isn't always like the best option as far as like <laughs> no. a business investment, you know? So, right. um, yeah, we're still great friends after that experience, but yeah, we weren't able to work it out. So when did you guys exactly open Forager? And, uh, so and- we opened Forager, uh, September 15th, 2015. Okay. Um, what was it, and com- we- what was it comprised of? Like the, the entity as a whole, what was it comprised of? Yeah, so it was basically, um, we licensed it as Kutsky Market LLC at that time. Uh, so we couldn't get the rights to Forager because there's a winery in California um, that has a brand called Forager. So that okay. was kind of difficult. Um, but we, at that point, we had a coffee shop up front. We had a basically art market, kind of like a thrift shop in the back. We had our full restaurant and then the brewery um, had... In a 10,000 square foot building, we had 400 square feet. So <laughs> we wow. didn't have a lot of space, but um, we're constantly pumping out beer. We were on a three and a half barrel system at that point and just grinding away. How much volume were you guys doing at that point? Our first year, like a calendar year, we probably did around 500 barrels, um, which was pretty wow. good. The most we've ever done was 700 and we've kind of pulled that back to more between 550, 600, we feel like is like a good number for us. You were actually working as a Creole clerk when you started to notice uh, like edible plants along the banks of the streams. It was then that you had your aha moment that led to Forager. Can you first explain what a Creole clerk is and how your interest in these plants turned into the idea behind the brewery as a whole? <laughs> if you're like a weird outdoor loving hippie kind of guy the creole clerk job is about as good as you can get they pay you (laughs) to drive around to trout streams and then 
walk up and down them for two hours. And all you do is interview anglers about their experience fishing. Really? So if there's nobody there. Maybe <laughs> I fished a little bit, you know, um, and got paid for it. So it was just a limited term job for nine months. Um, well, I was kind of like short on cash and just the opportunity came to me and I thought it looked really cool. Um, so it was great. And it also, as you said, exposed me to this like natural environment that had so many things to offer. And it kind of reconnected me to some of the experiences I had with my grandma when I was younger, where we'd go out in the forest in Madison and, and pick these certain things that we could, we could eat right there from the plant. And, um, that is what guided my like vision for making wild beers with those ingredients, um, those products. And then the guy who got me the job, uh, a friend of mine who works for the DNR, Dan Spence, um, he was like, man, you should just call this brewery you want to open Forager. And I was like, ah, I guarantee that name's taken. Like that <laughs> stuff's super popular with all the hipsters on the West coast and stuff. And sure enough, it wasn't. So we ended up getting that name, which was pretty great, but we also then were not allowed to distribute with it based on that winery out in California. Uh, so, uh, okay. So when along the line, did you meet Annie Henderson? Um, so I moved to Rochester after things kind of fell apart with Nosh. Um, I helped a friend open a Belgian beer bar and he was really nice and, um, was letting me give away my beer there. And he introduced me to Annie saying, Hey man, like this beer is great. Don't give up hope. I know you've had these two like messed up experiences, but Annie is the kind of gal who gets stuff done. Okay. So, um, I gave her some of my beer when she came into the restaurant, she said she thought it was great. And she was promoting a, a city council member and having like a big kind of fundraiser for that. So she asked me to bring a couple kegs to it and that she'd pay me for it. And I was like, that's totally illegal. I'll bring some kegs, but you can't pay me for it. Blah, blah, blah. I don't know. Maybe something got exchanged under the table. I can't really remember, but, uh, you know, it's like, I, it, I didn't know this at the time, but it was basically like this kind of blind interview oh. to see if she liked my personality, if people liked my beer, these things. So I got to meet kind of like all of her friends who are fairly well connected throughout Rochester. And after that, she's like, Hey, like, so I'm interested in open this brewery. Uh, I hear that you want to do that too. Do you want to like partner up on this? And I was kind of in the impression of like, Hey, you know, I've heard this before. Like, <laughs> I'm not really sure how this is going to go. Um, but I took the meeting with her and she's like, all right, I want to get this done in nine months. I was like, I don't think that's possible. And she's like, it's going to get done in nine months. We so have to find a location. So let's go like find a spot next week. And I was like, Whoa, like this is, seems a little more real than the other discussions I'd had. So I was like, I'm on board. We're calling it forager or I'm not in. And she was like, <laughs> sounds good. Um, and basically we found a location in like two weeks after that and signed the lease, started the build out. And nine months later we were open. So That's um, fast. my friend was right. She gets shit done. That <laughs> is fast, dude. That is fast. Well, that's awesome, though. That I mean, she was able to help push that through, and you guys got open at such like a breakneck speed. But obviously, I mean, it takes two good partners to obviously run a great business, which you guys have. You're listening to the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield, and we're talking to Austin Jevney of Forager. Can you explain to the listeners and the, the lay people out there in terms what mixed culture fermentation is and why it is such a passion for you as a brewer? Yeah, I think uh, mixed culture fermentation is this thing that kind of like exists out in the world and people don't have like a great definition for it. So for me, um, we took some cultures off of some black cap raspberries, which are these really tart little tannic small raspberries that grow along those trout streams in southeast Minnesota here. And we um, threw that into basically a Flanders red base. And I did this when I was a home brewer into a barrel and just the berries themselves uh, started fermentation in there. Oh, wow. Um, so it was like a legit wild fermentation. We then uh, ca- kept that going on like a Solera system, which means I pulled out uh, a percentage of the beer and then put new fresh wort into it and let that fermentation in the like wild culture that lived in there um, continue to grow and expand. And certain things were kind of beat out and outcompeted by like the more dominant strains that existed there. So I had done that with some 
uh, raspberries, some blackberries, gooseberries. And so I had all these different cultures. And we basically took the slurries from our favorite ones and isolated the culture with Shell Brewing Company that we really liked. And so we have this uh, wild uh, Britannomyces strain and a wild Lactobacillus strain that we got from those slurries. Um, which produce like some really, really cool flavors for us. So some of our beers are a blend of just those two cultures. Um, and then some are a mix of that entire slurry um, that we used to use, which had a little bit more stuff in there. Right. And so like the mixed fermentation really just means that there's more than one culture of organisms fermenting your wort. So if you make a lager, you're using a lager strain of yeast, and that's that. And you try as hard as you can to keep everything else out from from that beer. Uh, mixed firm, the point is to have these other things in there that layer your beer throughout time um, and temperature. So in Minnesota, why I love it is because it's half this artistic vision and half like nature still giving its like motherly hand to your product like we go through major changes in temperature in our uh, space where we ferment our wild beers so we will see no activity from our lactic acid producing bacteria in there during the winter months but see a really nice push from the Britannomyces strain and in the summer we'll see that acidity start to form slowly over time and each season is slightly different Um, and each time we brew a different wort is slightly different so we can coax flavors out that we definitely want um, based on the brewing methods and hopping rates and things like that. But uh, overall, it's still kind of left up to um, nature's devices to decide where the product goes. So it's got this kind of like, uh, I don't know, romantic feel to me with my love for the outdoors that, you know, this is an uncontrolled product that turns out super good, super unique and you know, it's not popular. We don't sell a lot of it, but I, I think it's my favorite beer to drink, my favorite style to make, my favorite style to blend. Right. Um, so, yeah, I, I just have a lot of passion for it. Absolutely. I mean, it's something I've thought about doing down here. Unfortunately, we don't really get a season, and our winter lasts about four days. So, <laughs> you, know, you know, it's like I, I had romantic dreams of building a cool ship and taking it to the Redlands with all the – exotic fruit trees down there and planting it there and and letting mother nature do its thing. But it would have to be on such a precise moment because of the window that it was, it just, it it makes it almost impossible. I mean, the other thing, you know, we could venture into like when you come back down is taking yeast from some of the exotic fruits as down in the redlands and letting that yeast itself go to work on some wort. I think that would be awesome. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it would be interesting to take mangoes, lychees, stuff like that. You know, obviously not passion fruit because of the hard shell, but some of the other fruits that I know plenty of wild yeast live on the outside of these fruits. So it would be interesting to throw those into wort and see what happens. Obviously, it would have to happen during the winter time because the summer would be no go. You know, especially yep. for, for oh, yeah. <laughs> as hot as it is down here. But what are your core beers besides the 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 mixed firm? And like, what are you experimenting with nowadays? And what are your more popular styles of beers that you guys are brewing? Yeah, so we're we're this interesting business where the the city of Rochester, where we're located, looks at us as a restaurant that happens to brew their own beer, and the rest of the world outside of that looks at us as a brewery that has food. So um, it's it's kind of interesting because the rest of the world loves what we do out of barrels. Our barrel age program has obviously put us on the map. It's yep. got us invited to your awesome festival and the other things around the world. Um, so like, we're very passionate about that. Um, we have really high standards for our barrel age products, but we also um, have to serve beer for our tap room and right. people who come there to eat food. So one of the beers that we make all the time is our Belgian double. It's, it's not, called wait, Johnny. Wait, it's not a spotted cow clone. <laughs> we actually have never made a cream ale strangely enough <laughs> but probably should do that bring that recipe back out of uh, hibernation um but yeah the the johnny c is uh, like super food friendly and it's kind of a shout out to our buddy who introduced annie and i um to getting this place open so he wanted i was like hey i'll make you a beer what do you want he loves uh belgian beers obviously so he chose a double kind nice. of in the 
uh, vein of Mare de Sioux. Right. And, uh, yeah, that beer sells like nuts in the tap room. We barely can keep it on tap. Yeah, you have, um, you have to have the core beers for sure, man. Yeah, and we've really pushed um, into experimenting with lagers recently. When we first opened, we didn't have great tank space and residency for lagers. But as we've kind of like slowed down production of certain styles of beer, we've given three tanks to lagers and they are just crushing in the tap room. People love drinking lagers, eating pizza and burgers and stuff. So that's worked out super well for us. And we've done all sorts of different styles. My favorite one we've done recently was like a pseudo Oktoberfest, but it was a a red lager with wild rice from Wisconsin um, and 100% red X malt. So it was a uh, it was a really nice beer. So uh, you you have talked about the restaurant and this cafe. Can you give us a quick overview of the of those two components of Forager? Yeah. So um, the restaurant is basically our core. We have wood fired pizza. Um, there are only one other spot in town that did that. So they were kind of like making traditional style pizzas, and we made you know weird you know small batch stuff. Um, that is not a pizza you'd see on like a pizza hut menu or something. So we are throwing like some cool stuff at it. Uh, it's been really well received, but the best part about our restaurant is we buy our ingredients from over 40 different local farmers. Wow. That's um, one of the best things we have about Rochester is we're surrounded by all these farms that are producing products for some of the best Michelin star restaurants up in the twin cities and they're our next door neighbors. So um, we get the opportunity to work with all of them and focus on, pretty much everything in our restaurant other than our um, hamburger buns and like our bread uh, we make in house uh, from these ingredients. So everything's scratch and we do a lot of, a lot of people through the restaurant. So it's not an easy task. We've got probably 30 employees in the kitchen. We're open from 11 to 11, seven days a week. So it's kind of a constant grind down there. Um, But our kitchen staff's awesome. They do a great job. And as far as the cafe, um, we had leased the space out um, after we kind of shut down our operation of the coffee shop for two years to this uh, donut shop called Drift Dough. Oh, okay. And the owner of that is uh, about to leave actually at the end of this month. So we're going to relaunch our cafe nice. um, and do brunch and breakfast. So now we're going to be open from 7 a.m. to oh. 11 p.m. every day. <laughs> so, um, yeah, just like throw another log on the fire, right? And, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we're really fortunate to be working with uh, Mostra Coffee out of California. They're nice. sourcing us all the coffee for our stuff. Good. We built a really good relationship with those guys, and they send us beans every week. Um, that we'll be using in all of our coffee drinks and kind of curated a new little brunch menu there. So, um, yeah, that original little thing that we did in the back, like the artisan market, uh, we had to close that down pretty, pretty quickly. It was like nine months into the business being open that we had to like, unfortunately tell those people we needed that space for for barrels and more seating and all the other things. So that, that also no longer exists uh, in our space. And we're kind of sad about that, but we do have, uh, rotating um, monthly like artist showings and things like that. That's all curated by one of our staff members. That's cool, man. That is awesome. Why is it important for you to pay homage to the Driftless area with your beer, your food, and your decor? So it's kind of been this like place that's been centralized in where I've lived my entire life, and I've always been going there. Um, mm-hmm. It's as I said before, it's this really special kind of untouched place. Um, And it's where I've gotten so much inspiration when I need to just like kind of break free from, you know, the grind, go down into the driftless region, reconnect with just nature, listening, feeling, experiencing nature. And, uh, for me, that's, that's my like Zen place. That's where, that's my religious sanctuary. That's, that's where I go to, to find myself again. Right. So, um, it's, it was obvious to absolutely pay homage to that. And, you know, let people know that this is a really cool place and you're probably just going to drive through it, but stop and check something out while you're there. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely, definitely, I need to get up there and check it out for sure. I got one last question for you, brother. What advice would you give to a new entrepreneur who has experienced early setbacks? So I would say read as much as you can. Um, Try to find what your passion is. Um, 
and live for that. Because if you do that, then your job becomes much easier. Um, you just need to find yourself. There's a lot of things in, in craft beer right now um, that are very trendy that are like, you are one of the people, John, who started these trends like that are blowing up all over the entire world. And it's, it's that thing that it's, if you hop on just to do that at this point, you know, is that for you or is that right. for financial gain? Like, I'm not really sure, but for me, if you're going to start a business that you want to work for, for your entire life, like you want to do that because it's something that you feel good about the backbone of that business and, and the structure of it and why you got into it in the first place is your passion for something, not just I want to work for myself and I want it to be financially stable. Right. You're not just um, trying to make a quick buck. Yeah. Yep. So, I, I mean, that, that's it for me is like, yeah. like do something that means something to you. I couldn't agree more. If you're more. not to be an entrepreneur. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, I want to thank you very much for your time. I want to tell all the listeners, go to Minnesota, go up to Rochester. Also, check out Forger, but also go and check out the Driftless area while you're there. So, uh, I mean, I don't want to blow it up too much, you know. <laughs> I don't want to interrupt your Zen moments out there, but, but I, I mean... I, I myself need to get up there, and I do want to say thank you very much for your time. It's been an, a pleasure having you on the show, brother, and uh, enjoy your trip to Copenhagen. Cool, man. Thanks a lot for having me, and I'll, uh, I'll be in touch. We'll get down there and get some yeast off, some fruit. Absolutely, brother. I'll see you soon, man. All right, All right later. Peace. You're listening to The Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield. Conversations on the business of brewing and popular culture. The harvest season for most crops is ending across America. Our next guest is the CEO of a 600-acre independent family hop farm nestled between the Cascade Mountains and the Oregon coast in the Willamette Valley. Although four generations of his family have grown green gold at the family farm before him, he has already put his own stamp on the family business by doubling down on the company's core value of sustainability and by vertically integrating the company so that it can work more closely with craft beer brewers that are seeking a higher quality product. Their customers range from many of the biggest names in the craft beer industry to microbreweries that you have never heard of. Our next guest prides himself on the special relationship he and his team have built with them all. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Blake Crosby. How you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you very much for joining us on the show today. Uh, we very much appreciate your time. Um, so I, I want to kind of start out, if you could, for the listeners and explain what hops are and why they are so important to the brewing process. Yeah, well, hops are a pretty amazing plant, and uh, they're perennial. So we plant them in the, usually from a, uh, either a potted plant or a rhizome and put them in the ground. And the idea is they stay there for quite a while, and uh, they can be productive for decades. Um, and ultimately, we're growing hops that produce a flower, which is the female variety of hops so there actually are male and female hops we grow in the commercial hop world we grow females because they produce the flower that brewers use ultimately to make awesome beers and awesome craft beers that are super flavorful uh the hops have a tremendous amount of oil and resins that contribute to the flavor and aroma that we all most of us love so yeah and they're really i mean they're preservative Am I correct? Yeah, yeah they are they preserved. Natural, they do. They have some natural uh, preservation type properties. And my understanding is a long, long time ago, that is a big part of how hops ended up in beer was to preserve beer. And um, they naturally have uh, some antimicrobial properties. Yes, and, they do. And that's, yep. that's part of what we see there, which is kind of cool. So I, I want to kind of go back. I, would, I guess we can kind of paint a picture here. So, we have you at a young age walking around this beautiful farm in your, uh, let's say Carhartt jacket and area boots, you know, watching all these tractors and farm equipment buzz around the fields. When, you know, suddenly a, a question occurs to you, like, what is this stuff? You can't eat it. Why do you grow it? How old were you when you first learned about what hops are and by extension, you know, what beer is? Yeah. I, you know, I think back on that sometimes, and there was one moment that I recall, and it would have been during harvest, and I was probably 
maybe five years old and uh, my parents um, both were very involved with the harvest and my mom would, would work in the kiln actually at night because uh, it was a day and night type thing, which it still is today. And my dad was, was kind of working day and night. Uh, the operation was a lot smaller back then. And so it was very much hands-on. And I remember going there to visit because I was staying with my grandparents during that period because my parents were busy working. Right. And uh, so I got to stay at grandma and grandpa's house, which was fun. And we went out to visit. And I just remember walking into, it would have been the baling facility. And there's these big mountains of dried hops getting pressed in the bales. Uh, I remember that moment being pretty interesting because that smell, it was the first time I remember that real defining, you know, <laughs> that aromatic. Yeah. yeah, super aromatic. And it was overwhelming in a good way. And I don't know if that was the moment when I realized what hops were, but it was the moment that I remember thinking they were really awesome and cool. And like, I don't quite understand all this, but whatever my parents are doing seems kind of special. <laughs> of um, and I remember that. And I remember that. And then I don't know exactly after that, if, you know, at some point I figured out what beer was and kind of understood the hops went into beer. But to be totally uh, serious, it's, it's kind of hard to believe, but it wasn't until I was probably even out of college that I fully realized how our hops were being used by brewers. And a big part of that was historically um, a lot of the hop farmers, including ourselves, sold to merchants. And we never had any connection with brewers and never really thought about it. Oddly enough, uh, we just grew the crop, sold it to the merchant, and uh, got paid, and that was it. Wow. So how many generations have you guys, has this farm, or you guys been in the hop industry, really? So we started we, we started here in Lama Valley um, farming late 1800s. Uh, we put our first hops in the ground around 1900, though. Wow. Um, so 121 years ago, and I'm the fifth generation that's been in the hop business here. Wow. That's, that's awesome. Do you, yeah. rem- do you remember what, I mean, how many acres do you guys have now? Uh, now we have 600 acres of hops. Wow. And uh, I'm sure it didn't start out that big, but over time it grew to that. I mean, how many different, what you would call varietals, do you guys grow on these 600 acres now? Uh, we have 15 right now. And kind of rewinding to when I was getting out of college, which I alluded to earlier, that's when I started to get interested in the business of hops. And then we only had about three, as I recall, three varieties. And that was, um, oh, what, 14 years ago. Do you, so do you, you remember, can see there's been a big evolution. Do you remember those three varieties you had back then? Yeah, yeah. So it was uh, Nugget um, was a real big one for us. And uh, Nugget in the Willamette Valley always did really well historically, which is where we're at in Oregon. Right. Uh, Sterling which I recall that one because uh, I thought it was really cool because that one in the day we actually sold directly to Coors Brewing Company. Oh. Which I always thought was cool because, again, we didn't have many connections with brewers, but that was one we did have. Um, And then we grew Willamette hops as well. Of course, of course. Do you guys live on the farm now? I mean, has your family always lived on the farm or or was it always pretty much kind of off-site deal? Uh, family, yeah, has traditionally lived on the farm, grew up on the farm, uh, family homes on the farm. Uh, I sort of broke mold and moved. I'm about 15 miles north of the farm, kind of between the farm and PDX. Okay. Uh, which I've, I've come to enjoy that. So I can kind of go both directions a little bit easier. Of course. Absolutely. Who would you say taught you the most about hop farming? Was it your father, grandfather, or was it more just learning bits and pieces from the people that worked on the farm? I think it's maybe it's like anything like having a mentor or a coach in this case, primarily my dad um, and his father as well was around. Uh, he passed away when I was 24. So, so I was fortunate to have quite a bit of time with my grandfather, which I really appreciate now looking back. And I'd say my dad and my grandfather, especially my dad, of course. And then probably the last five, seven years, um, you know, you start to kind of, do things yourself and, and, you know, you modify methods or right. you try new things or, you know, everyone approaches things differently. Uh, and it's no different in a family business. So, you know, my style is a little different than my dad's was, was different than his dad's was. Um, so I think right now I have all that knowledge. It was imparted to me and now I'm kind of iterating off of that. And also now I, I reach out more to other hop growers and I like to network with other farms, even in Yakima and Idaho and throughout Oregon and, and try to learn from other growers. Nice. Did, did you always have the, the idea that you would take over the family business or did you, uh, 
have a secret, you know, like fantasize about moving to New York to become like a head fund manager. <laughs> <laughs> I never had big money aspirations. Um, I went to college here in Oregon and so I didn't go too far away and I've always been a, a an avid musician and oh. uh, play the drums and always appreciate that kind of stuff. And I thought somehow, some way, maybe I could do that for a living. Right. And for a moment, it looked like that could be a thing, and, and then it wasn't, and I was okay with that, and I ended up moving home, and and I always loved the hop farm, too, and nice. so so that just kind of happened naturally. It was very natural and easy for me to embrace the hop farm, because I always loved it, and then the craft brewing thing really started to continue to, to develop as I was coming out of college, so, you know, you just sometimes end up on a path, and you kind of follow your heart, and... Um, that was a pretty easy decision for me because my heart was always on the farm. Right. And, uh, and there were some cool opportunities as I got into craft beer. That's awesome. Yeah. I actually, my, my family owns, they're in the Marine industry and I was there and worked there for 15 years, but my heart was never really in it. So I decided to open a, a brewery instead. <laughs> so, but I mean, that's why, you know, Hey, that's why we're here today talking. I mean, yeah. uh, my heart was actually into brewing and, and took me there instead of being into boats, which my family still is in, in the business, but, that is awesome that you still kind of stayed in that realm and that your heart was in the farm and, and, and stayed there. Um, how old were you when you, when you took over the family business and were you at all like freaked out about, you know, when they handed you the reins? Yeah, it was a process for sure. And I got back into the business, you know, I grew up working on the farm, like just hourly, you know, doing grunt work through the summer, saving some money for school and, and always, you know, a lot of good memories from that and appreciate right. that experience. Uh, as far as getting into like what I'd say the business side of hops, um, as I came out of college and so around 23, 24, and I was starting to kind of poke around here again and, and looking for something to do and started out again doing the grunt work. Um, but quickly I started to realize that I needed to do something a little more aspirational and so that's where there was a little bit of an entrepreneurial light bulb that went off and I saw potential. We're pretty close to Portland, Oregon, obviously a lot of uh, beer culture there. And I saw the potential to connect with some local brewers and I started to get into the craft scene myself personally. And that created this idea where I said, well, maybe we could be doing more interactive directly with brewers. And, you know, historically we never did. We were working with merchants. So, my evolution kind of started along that path of an idea to work more closely with craft brewers. And, and that created a whole new business for Crosby um, that started kind of formally. We actually right. established a, a pellet processing business in 2012. And the business has been on a whole other path and growth trajectory that I've led since then. So I kind of came home and started a new business within the business that has transformed the business and has been really cool. <laughs> Well, of course. I mean, actually, and I, I was going to I was going to ask you about that. So about nine years ago, you actually began to vertically integrate Crosby hops. And prior to that, you had said, you know, you worked with merchants and brokers that used to sell Crosby hops to brewers. Now you sell directly to the end user. How has that changed your overall scope of business? I'm sure it's helped it grow. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think the biggest their biggest reward for me has been the opportunity to grow the business, but also to grow just my personally and professionally. It's required a lot for me in terms of just stepping up and leaning into things that are sometimes uncomfortable. And, you know, it's like anytime you grow, especially if you're trying to build a business, it's uh, it challenges you and it, and it tests you and it pushes you. Um, I've learned to really enjoy that and appreciate that. And it's been awesome also to build a team and, I'd never really built a team before, but right. once you do that, you start to realize how special that is Of course, and um, realize that it's even bigger than beer and hops. And there's, there's a lot of other great things. And, and, you know, besides even profitability and all that, there's, there's a lot of other great things that come with that. Um, so for me, that's probably the biggest evolution. Um, the business has grown though um, in size a lot because of it as well. That's been exciting and it's allowed us to do some really cool things and, and usually have a lot of fun, you know, of course. Not, that, not every day is perfect and, no. you know, fun, <laughs> but most days are still pretty fun and, uh, like what we do and feel very blessed to be in such a cool industry. And, um, I would have never guessed, uh, growing up on the farm. It was just 
such a different culture when I was growing up and we were largely serving merchants who were serving industrial brewers. Uh, it was very mechanical and, and there wasn't a lot of, uh, there wasn't a lot of the spirit and camaraderie you experience today. And, and that's been really cool. Right. Cause now you're, you're more closely tied to the craft brewers, which I think is a completely different spirit than a macro brewer, nothing against the macro guys, but I think the spirit level in the craft brewing industry is on a completely different plane than those guys. Absolutely. How many tons of hops do you guys grow a, re- a year now? Well, this year um, on our farm, we cracked a million pounds wow. of production, which wow. was, that was cool because that was a first for us. And because of that growth I talked about, um, we've been able to grow a lot more acres. Uh, in addition to what we grow, um, our model has evolved to also working closely with a few other farms that we trust, a few here in Oregon and Washington and Idaho. Um, so we do also purchase hops um, from those growers and, and certain varieties maybe we don't grow here in Oregon or varieties that we'd like to have more selection on for brewers come harvest time. And, you know, we're learning that some brewers prefer, you know, for example, an Oregon bridal of the same variety versus a Yakima or, or vice versa. And, and we found that it's a lot more robust model and even just for risk management of supply uh, to be able to source from some other farms. So um, we about a third of what we we sell um, currently we grow ourselves and actually the other two thirds um, we're sourcing from a variety of other farms that we trust. Oh, nice. To do a good job oh, as well. And you guys are, I think you had said you are pelletizing it yourself now. Yeah, yeah. So we have our own pellet production facility here since 2012 that we're we're running all of our stuff through. You're listening to the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield, and we're speaking to Blake Crosby of Crosby Hop Farms. As I've been in, you know, had my brewery here now for over seven years, the thing has always been, you know, hop utilization. And now, as you've seen, we started with T90, and then it was the cryo pellets and this and that. I mean, do you think there's another step, or do you think like the cryo and like that kind of uh, cryo blend where it's not that level of utilization? I mean, is there another step to this, do you think, for the next uh, pelletized form of hops? Um, I'm still trying to answer that question myself. I think naturally there's there's a lot of smart people out there in the hop industry and, and even beyond, um, and I think those folks are working hard on those types of questions. Um, from my perspective, I certainly think there's going to be more evolution and innovation. Um, I don't quite know how far you can take right. a natural product and continue to convert it into new products right. um, without <laughs> it getting too far away from the core. Of course. And I wonder about that. Um, you know, how far away from the core product can we comfortably get where it's still engaging and, and exciting and, and like I said, kind of feeling natural, Of course, um, which yeah. is, I think, aligned with craft brewers' values. I do think we're going to see more uh, sophisticated downstream products in terms of extracts. Um, I think we're seeing that already. Yeah. And I think there's going to be a certain portion of the market that embraces that. I think there's a, there's probably a good chunk of the market that still probably won't. Um, I do think most of the market is going to continue to be in pellets for quite a while. A long time. Um, but Very I long think time. Pellets, yeah. I think pellets are going to continue to be produced at a high level of quality. And we've seen that even in the last decade, quality go up a lot. Um, yes. And I think you're going to see more iterations of concentrated pellets, um, in addition to some, you know, interesting extracts, I'm sure that will continue to come out. Beyond that, I, it's hard to imagine what else can we do with the hop, but I'm sure there's something. Without taking it completely away from what it naturally is, yeah, I mean, I can, I absolutely can agree with that. I mean, I've just watching the different versions of this thing that has come out over the last seven years is, it's it's good in some forms, in other ways, you're kind of like, well, is this really still doing what it's meant to do or has it completely changed the the flavor and aroma profile i mean it's i ask that question a lot of times but i guess we'll have to wait and see so this was your second season of growing zappa hops which is a more heat resistant strain it seems to have done well despite this year's record heat what other measures are you taking to ensure that brewers will continue to have hops to brew their beer even as the planet's temperature seems to continue to rise yeah, so Zappa has been a fun one. It's it comes from some Neo Mexicanus genetics, so it's uh, a native variety from New Mexico region, southwest United States. 
And so it's used to desert life, little to no water. And that was fascinating to watch this year because, um, as everyone probably knows by now, in the Pacific Northwest had some record-breaking heat uh, in the middle of the summer. And here in Oregon, I think we hit, depending on where you're at, 115, 116 Fahrenheit. Wow. Which was, yeah. I think for that one day, I think Portland, Oregon was actually the hottest place in the world. <laughs> Whoa. For that okay. one day. Um, wow. You know, normally you see Dubai or of you know, Death Valley yeah. on that list. And Portland, Oregon was actually number one. <laughs> I was watching the news that night and it just blew my mind. That's crazy. So that was surreal, kind of scary. Um, we didn't know what to expect. And we certainly saw a lot of stress in the plants. Um, and the good news is uh, harvest was still favorable. And we had, uh, I'd say, overall good yields. Um, I think to answer your question as far as what are we doing is, well, first of all, figuring out how to continue to use less water and still get the right, you know, good outcomes. Um, so we're doing a lot of work with our drip irrigation systems. Uh, and we've actually invested uh, starting a couple years ago in uh, automation there uh, to, to essentially allow us to use moisture sensors and some data um, to make watering decisions rather than just um, touch and feel. Um, right. I mean, the, the, the soft skills of touch and feel are still important, um, but we're also learning we could be a little more intentional with data and, and sensors and understanding when we need to water and maybe when we don't. And then we're learning each variety is kind of different. And so we're continuing to figure that out too. And some varieties need more water than others. I'd say historically, we treated them all the same. Uh, going forward, we're continuing to start to learn each variety and be a little more intentional about the needs of that plant. Um, in addition to that, just where we farm, you know, being mindful about water rights and, you know, certain areas are better for water in, in, in various farming regions than others. And so we're just being really mindful of that when we're planting new hops and make sure we're putting them in the right spot for water. We're fortunate, you know, knock on wood, but in the Willamette Valley, historically, we're kind of known for being a pretty wet state here in Oregon. Yes. Um, we have pretty good water resources overall. Uh, however, um, that certainly is changing in the sense that, you know, we're drying out and we're getting warmer as well um, in the summer and the spring. Um, so I think it's just, you know, we're continuing to be mindful and, definitely using less um, as much as we can and still enough to get the outcome. Nice. About 10 years ago when I was still uh, home brewing, I actually bought some rhizomes and planted them in planters in my backyard. Miami soil, at least in the area that I live, unless you're in the Redlands, are great for growing like very tropical fruits and stuff, but not favorable for hops. So I decided to plant the rhizomes in planters and I planted uh, Cascade, Centennial, Chinook, Magnum, and, and Nugget. And the sea hops were actually pretty prolific for what they were coming out of a planter. But it was interesting to see, like, how picky these, these varieties can be. I mean, and for it, as hot as and wet in the, as this place is, to still see some of these hops put off flowers, and I was able to use them in some home brews and stuff, it was, uh, it was pretty shocking. I, I still need to get out. In, to a harvest and, and see this because I'm sure it's an amazing sight that you guys have watching this unfold and happen in front of your own eyes with the product that we use every single day in, in mass quantity. Um, so I got, I got a question. So your great-great-grandfather, Albert, planted those first hops in 1900. What do you think he would have to say nowadays about the business that you have built? Man, I don't know. I mean, I can't even imagine, yeah, just the world in general for someone from that era, what they would think. Um, it would probably feel like, you know, so foreign and, of course, you know, just strange. Um, I often think, cause I didn't know Albert, but I often think of my grandfather, Edgar, right. who would have been the third generation, my, my dad's dad. Cause I knew him pretty well. Um, and then sometimes people ask me like, yeah, what do you think grandpa Ed would think if you were to, you know, just right. drop out of outer space and be here one day, <laughs> you know, in the middle of this, farm as it is now and i don't actually know other than i think he would just his jaw would probably drop i'm sure he would just be speechless yeah and he would just not even he couldn't even compute probably what's going on and the fact that people want our products and people care about hops and people care about quality and, and brewers you know crappers are willing to pay a fair price and it's actually a sustainable business model where 
during previous generations, it was very up and down. It was highly volatile. It was highly commoditized. So, you know, it was a lot of down periods and occasionally an up spike and then a big crash afterwards. And that's what my grandpa was used to. And even my dad. Um, so I think it'd be really hard for my grandpa to even understand um, this marketplace and the fact that we have relationships with customers that really care about us sticking around for the long haul and care about values and purpose. And, you know, a lot of those things that I think even in business in general, a generation or two ago, uh, the conversations were very different. Nice. Nice. So my last question here is, do you have a sixth generation waiting in the wings to take over after you? That's the right question. I get it now more than ever. Um, (laughs) Currently I don't, I don't. And uh, hopefully someday that'll be the reality. And I certainly want to see the business go on and go forward. That's awesome. Um, It's a long time though. Six generations. I know that. I mean, I don't, I honestly don't know a lot of businesses (laughs) that are six generations deep. I mean, that's uh, even five generations. You know what I mean? Because nowadays a lot of the kids are like, yeah, I don't want to do that. And they just move on to something else. So, I mean, I applaud that it's, you've carried this on. This is a, it's an awesome business at that. And, uh, you know, we deal with, with you guys and other hop growers and it's essential for us to keep doing what we're doing. So just, you know, thank you very much. Well, thank you. I mean, we certainly appreciate it and it's awesome that you have this show and you're, you're sharing this with, with people even outside the industry. I think it's, it's, it's a great peek into, into the world of beer and hops and everything us craft brewers have done the last well, several decades. Yeah. It's been awesome. Well, I very much appreciate that. And I very much appreciate you uh, coming on the show and uh, giving us your time and all the information. It was, uh, it was great to hear about all this. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And uh, have a good day. And uh, I need to get out there and visit you guys for sure. Anytime. Yeah. We'd love to have you. Uh, harvest is a good time to come. Absolutely. We also have a on-site beer garden that's open to the public called Top Wire. Ooh. Gonna have to check that out. Yeah, if you go on our website, well, the Topwire website, it's called Topwire Hop Project. So it's topwirehp.com. Okay. But if you're ever out here, uh, it's been quite popular. In fact, it won uh, Best uh, Beer Garden um, in the Oregon Beer Awards this last year. Nice. Okay. Meant a lot. And and it's certainly been popular and it's right on the farm. Nice. Actually, I will actually really, really have to get out there now and check that out. Besides the hop farm, check out Topwire. So all the listeners now. If you want to go see a hop farm, please go to Crosby Hops. But also, while you're at Crosby Hops, please go check out their new beer garden, Top Wire. Well, thank you again, yeah. Blake. I very much appreciate right. your time. Have a good one, man. Thanks. We'll see you. Right. And that's it for this week. I'd like to thank my guests, Austin Jevney and Blake Crosby, my co-host, Maria Cabre, and my producer, Rocco Riggio. Thank you for listening. You can catch us each Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Business Radio 132. Replays are on Saturdays at 8 p.m. and Sundays at 1 p.m., or anytime on the SiriusXM app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Remember, people, the thirst is real.